Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to have the battle of accents here. We got the Spaniard, we got the French, you know, and obviously both here in the U.S. as well. What a country. Oh, my God. But we're going to be learning a lot, a lot about scaling. More importantly, blitz scaling. A lot about Series Bs that are on plan, raising more than what one would have expected. And then also some of the, you know, things that come with it. But without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Pierre Duboc. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexandro. Glad to be here. So originally born there in Normandy, but uh, you moved a little bit. So how was life growing up? Life was great. Uh, yeah, I was born in France, uh, lived in a small, you know, village. Then we moved around. Um, I spent part of my life in Provence, very nice area, and then studied in the south of France. I also studied in, in Australia and Sydney, and then ended up in Paris. And more recently moved to New York. In the state. So let's talk about, you know, you being in school because, you know, when you were actually in your in your high school days, you know, you started to really kind of like see some of the inefficiencies that uh, that was happening there and and you started to think about, you know, hey, maybe you know like there's a way to to get those courses, you know, online. I mean, what what happened there? Yeah, that's right. So my uh, a friend of mine, Mathieu, my co-founder, uh, started to create online courses to help some friends, published that online for free. So it was the best way to share those courses and stumbled upon his courses for them before. And I, I started to help him uh, build the platform. And it was in 1999. And we were actually in middle school at first. Uh, and we did so prior to studies for many, many years. We, we rebuilt the courses we wish we had. And those first courses were mostly on uh, web development, computer science, programming, like IT-related stuff. And uh, we did so for many years and became the reference platform to learn coding in French. And actually for you, I mean, it has been, you know, as they say, ideas, they take time to incubate. You know, they're always as well dormant, you know. So for you, this was what? eventually became the, the seed that you planted, you know, for, for the company, you know, to really, you know, come to fruition. But, but in this case, you know, like before you actually launched the company, you actually put yourself through studying computer uh, uh, science, no, or engineering in more, yeah. more telecommunications, more on the telecommunications side. But, but I guess that shaped up a little bit more, perhaps, you know, the way that you could have gone 
about the execution. So, so tell us about, you know, what happened there, because instead of like really tackling it right away, you actually went at it, you know, with university and then you picked back where you had left it. So, so tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, we, we started in 99 and it took us until 2013 until we really build this as, uh, you know, a venture-backed company. It's been a personal project and a small, you know, mom-and-pops shop uh, for many years because at first it was not it was not a business. For many, many years, it was just, you know, we're just helping friends and helping people, and it was just a side project for us, personal project. So it took us a while until we realized it could be actually a full-time job and it could be a company, it could become a company. And when we were in college, uh, actually, some of our buddies use our own websites instead of their, you know, classes. And this is probably when we started realizing, oh, actually, this is, it might be a sign, you know. And at some point, uh, one of our uh, teachers uh, in college told us that, like, he kind of knew about what we were doing and he had a pretty good idea of the significant size of its impact already. And he said something like, but honestly, uh, you guys would shill it if you were to become a school, a college yourself. Because basically, I'm seeing students who learn everything thanks to you and not thanks to, you know, old school. <laughs> so make it a school and you're going to like. And at first, we really, we, we thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> we thought. What he said was just, you know, erratic. It was it was nonsense, um, because we pictured a school, a college, as you know something like a big building, a campus, and classrooms, and desks, and chairs, and a whiteboard, and chairs, and all of that. And to us, it, it was definitely not what we wanted. So we kind of rejected that, and pushed back for for a while. And at some point, actually, we realized, oh, actually. We, we could be a, a college. And this is when really things uh, got started. And, and in 2013, we built open classrooms as a mission-driven company. The mission is to make education accessible. We became the very first fully online college in France. And we got full degree awarding powers, which was something completely new and unexpected for, for many, many um, folks in, in, in the market. And, and from there, you know, we, we went from one milestone to, to the other. So what ended up becoming the business model of open class rooms? Yeah, so at this stage, we made a big pivot in 2013 um, when we moved to open classrooms because before we used to operate as almost like a non-for-profit, you know. You know, it was a big community. We had plenty of people helping. We already built the company, but it was a business model based on advertising. So um, it was really different. And at some point we said, no, actually, you know what? We're going to change the business model. We're going to change the brand. Uh, we moved from a former brand that was Zero, so It means uh, to learn from scratch in French. And um, we want to switch to open classrooms that is kind of more global and more education related. and then. We want to get degree awarding powers. So all of that was very new. It was a big pivot, and it was 
very painful because we had to say basically no to a part of what we were before. And uh, obviously some people liked it, some people didn't like it. And, and it was a painful period for us uh, to go through for, for a while. But eventually when we did and we, we made it clear what our intent and our ambition and our mission was, very quickly it was it was easier actually it was easier because it was clearer and you know you were maybe aligned or misaligned to that but at least you know we we knew what we were um so it was a very interesting phase and we we ditched our advertising business model uh so the revenue went uh we had publishing uh, we were publishing books as well. We were publishing house. We went and we sold the business. And then we started from scratch almost again um, to build uh, an education business model, which, which was about selling education. So really uh, charging for training programs, for degree programs, and, and the subscription model at first. So then, so then what, what ended up, I mean, how does Open Classroom work today? I mean, how does it work? So the way Open Classrooms uh, operates is that we offer um, about 60 degree programs. So programs leading to associate, bachelor's and master's degrees and leading to jobs. So actually the outcome for us more than a degree is to get a job. So we train you on tomorrow's jobs, tomorrow's competencies and jobs in high demand. We actually guarantee you a job. So if you don't find a job within six months, we're going to refund your tuition fees. And those jobs are mostly in tech, uh, in the digital industry, or in, on business-related positions. So tech and digital would be code, data, AI, cyber, digital marketing, product management, UX design kind of stuff. And then business-related jobs would be sales, management, leadership, finance, HR, etc. Um, and the way we train is is something very, very flexible, very unique, very modern, fully online. It's competency based. So to get the degree, you need to validate um, the set of skills corresponding to your degree and to your job. You have to demonstrate your skills through projects. So you have a dozen professional projects to to complete. Those projects are real life case studies. So you want to become a data scientist. Imagine you're in this company, here's a data set, you have to clean the data, format it, explore, run some algorithm, and then make a pitch to your manager or your client. And you're gonna demonstrate your skills this way. You have access to online courses, MOOCs, basically massive online courses to gain the competencies and the cornerstone of the pedagogy is one-on-one mentorship. So you have a dedicated industry practitioners on data science in this example. Um, tutoring you, coaching you every week on a one-on-one basis. So a program like this would typically last for like 12 months and you would meet your mentor every week. So that's 50 times. So it's really high-touch, human-based support until we help you find a job. So we also offer one-on-one career coaching. We match you with uh, our network of 1,500 employers um, because the, the end goal is really for you to to get a job. So that that's a product we sell. We started selling B two C, but actually most of of our revenue now comes from B two B. So we make three quarters of the business 
in B2B, and that's for uh, upskilling employees, reskilling employees, and running apprenticeship programs. And also to governments. You guys even sell to governments. That's right. So we started also selling to governments like three years ago, and then that got accelerated like crazy with COVID notably and stimulus packages. Uh, obviously, the number of job seekers um, exploded with COVID. So we, we, we do sell to governments, uh, what do we call rescaling programs or workforce development programs. And uh, this is really on five target populations uh, who are job seekers, refugees, school, drop, school dropouts, people living in underprivileged areas and, and individuals with disabilities. And, and in your guys' case, I mean, when you got started with the business, I mean, it was about 2012, you know, like really seriously. Really, at that time, the startup ecosystem was not really that developed in Europe. In, 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 I mean, I remember in Spain, you know, at that point, you know, it was like either you became a lawyer, a banker, or, or a consultant, right? I'm sure that in, in Paris, where you were at, it was, it was, it was most, most likely the same. So how was the ecosystem, you know, back then and, and how hard it was for you guys to really get going and, and starting to raise money? You're right. It was definitely less mature than it is today um when we studied in college you know well, schools didn't have any like entrepreneurship tract or you know any any support whatsoever on, on entrepreneurship no they do uh you know things change in the meantime we really had to find everything on our own today if you don't know how to hire somebody because this is not something I learned in college, you know, how to hire my first employee, for example. I have no idea. There was not so many resources as well online. So it was hard to just get access to best practices and methodologies. You could buy a few books and you need to read like 500 pages can be pretty long. Now, it's much easier. Uh, first, you can actually be taught this in a incubator, accelerator, in, even in college. Um, but you'll find also plenty of courses and plenty, plenty of content online to, uh, you know, teach you the basics of recruitment, in my example. So I think things change. Also, the access to capital change, much more capital on the market in Europe, way easier to raise, and especially in education. Back then, the education market was non-existent yeah. um, at tech, I mean, at tech market. So that, that changed a lot. So we, we had to push pretty hard uh, to get to where we wanted to. Uh, I would say, generally speaking, I feel it's a bit easier now at, at a world stage, but also because the market is more favorable than it was when we really started many years ago. Got it. So, I mean, obviously, you guys have been able to ride that wave, which is, uh, which is amazing. Because how, how, how much capital have you guys raised today? A hundred fifty million dollars. Okay, uh, and the the Series B round was pretty interesting. It was completely unplanned. So how how did the Series B come together? Yeah, it's an interesting story because so we are right now at Series C. We just raised a couple of months ago, raised another eighty million. But the Series B was sixty million dollars back in twenty eighteen. So that's three years ago. And um, at this stage, we were like between fifty to sixty employees. We're probably making about 10 to 15 million euros of revenue. Um, so, you know, decent size, but not, not huge. Uh, we were growing pretty fast. It was 
going well, um, but we had no plans to raise right now. And um, and a fund based in New York actually reached out. Their name is uh, General Electronic, and they reached out and said, uh, "Oh, we spotted you guys in education. We're super interested in education. Can we talk?" We're like, "Okay, why not?" So we we had a first chat with the analyst based in in New York, and and he said, "Okay, I understand you guys are not raising, but uh, we have actually a team in London." Um, they'll be in Paris on Friday. Uh, are you available? Uh, can you meet them? It's like, well, you know, why not? So we, we met them, came to our office, uh, we went along, and then, you know, the next week they were like, oh, but actually we understand you don't want to raise right, right now, but you guys will raise eventually, like, let's say at the end of the year or something like that. And we're like, yeah, probably. And, and 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 basically, you know, after this conversation, they said, uh, "But what if we would cut this round right now on the table, uh, as you want it in twelve months? But we put it right now, and it's easy, it's quick, and you can get back to business, you know." And of course, it's tempting, but you know, uh, when you're good experience, you're like, ah, it, it's tempting, but you know, it doesn't work that way. So we, we pressed a bit hard and played hardball, but but eventually we went into due diligence and they did cut a term sheet that was pretty exciting for the stage of our company. Um and we raced with General Atlantic, they led around, um, and that went that, that went pretty quickly. Um so it was a bit unexpected and, and happened quickly at a at a pretty sizable, uh, you know, amount uh, for the stage of the company, and then obviously it was a huge success, and we're super super excited by this. Um, but then after, um, we had we didn't really have the infrastructure and the resources to just swallow sixty million dollars of capital. I mean, sixty million dollars of it's a lot of money. It's a lot of zeros. It's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of zero. Yeah. So at this stage, it was one million of capital for every employee of the company, right? Um, you can do a lot with one million, yeah. you know. Um, so it was a lot of money, and we we started to operate at a much faster pace. But we were already operating, you know, at a fast pace, and and um. And it was really hard, you know. <laughs> everything was a shit show uh, because everything started to break. We had no infrastructure, no tools, no processes. We had to hire many new top managers, and I interim quite a few roles for a while. It took me probably about eighteen months to get it stabilized, and twenty-four months to have a proper team. And and this period of time was really really tough because we we walked like crazy like dogs day and night, and it was just not sufficient. You know, uh, it it would never have been sufficient. Um, and uh, we started also missing our targets, and it was so it was a lot of pressure, not necessarily by the way imposed by our investors, but just imposed by ourselves. It's like oh we we need to do this, we need to do that, and and we're 
like falling behind and it was it was really really hard um but we yeah we were not set for, for yeah this. well i mean obviously i mean you guys were making a killing but but obviously you know like with what you're saying i mean you guys were already operating at a fast pace and then all of a sudden you have all this money and and you got to use it and you got to deploy so so you were mentioning i mean some of the things that you were able to do to kind of like stabilize everything was getting more senior uh people in uh what what were like some of the typical issues that you were encountering so typical issue would be you have three engineers it, it works really well they're super productive you add four five six seven eight and then the the output of this team is actually lower than when you had only three engineers uh it's it's very common actually it's a bit counterintuitive but it doesn't it's not because you add more resources that you'll get more output at some point it's actually even going completely sideways um and it was honestly the same across the board like engineering a product in tech was the same in sales like one sales person would sell would made made a killing but then we add four and then it's a disaster and we don't sell anything um, because maybe your 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 really brilliant salesperson will would become the manager so they don't sell anymore mm. uh, and then you hire uh, new sales reps and they're not trained and maybe they're not the right ones and um, so we had uh, a huge loss of productivity across the board so that's that's a huge issue um, then we started to hire like crazy sometimes in a non-structured way. So we made some mistakes. Uh, sometimes people were not at the right level. Sometimes they didn't have the right behaviors and the right mindset, the right culture. Um, obviously, we, you know, we fixed this uh, uh, when, we, when we understood it was the case. But still, you know, uh, one yeah. day is uh, one day too many. Um, no, of course. When, when you're operating, so um, so many problems of productivity, making mistakes, uh, being slightly inefficient on on many different fronts. And then you were alluding to, I mean, you guys just raised the Series C, and that was eighty million. And the last twelve months have been really blitz scaling, uh, in blitz scaling mode. So blitz scaling is what Reid Hoffman, you know, coined, you know, as a term. Uh, so so tell us, you know, what. What has been blitz scaling for you guys? How did that look like? So for us, um, what, what it means is that when COVID hit, it obviously created uh, strong tailwinds on our market because we're fully online. And, and then the market started to accelerate. Uh, and after just a few weeks, we understood that, okay, that's going to that's change the dynamics. Um, so when COVID hit, we were about 150 staff in the company. And then now we're more than 400. Uh, we hire, we hire 250 people this year. Um, and we still have like 150 to hire. Uh, so we've been more than doubling, uh, year over year in terms of sales, revenue, people, everything. So it's been very hectic because when you double, it's more than doubling, but let's just for the sake of uh, clarity, if you double, it means that half of your team arrived less than six months ago. <laughs> so they're they're newbies. They know nothing about anything. <laughs> um, and and it means they 
I mean, now it's the majority of your team that just know nothing because they just arrived and you need to train them, but uh, they, they they were not there. They didn't see, you know, what you did just last week or last month or last quarter. So you start, start needing uh, a lot of internal communications, very strong recruitment processes, very strong onboarding and training processes and performance management and people management and um, then also uh, career plans and career development opportunities for them because you know they wanna they wanna grow they don't become managers they want to be senior uh, leaders they don't want to become you know whatever um, so you need you need to fix a lot of things to, to make it make it work but yeah we right now we we hire about forty to fifty people a month so it's a lot of interviews it, it takes a lot of energy from um, managers and a lot of people to just onboard and and the more you hire the more mistakes you you make maybe and then you need to fix this and then replace them etc so, so it, it, it's just it's been it's been very interesting but um at a stage you know at this stage it means that everything might be a waste small waste of your time so for example when we started to say okay we need to hire actually a hundred people next month um one thing that was uh, a roadblock was just getting your hands on laptops uh because to to have a hundred laptops we use macs you need to order apple and apple maybe has a one month delivery uh period for for a hundred laptops order and especially during covid actually there was a shortage of laptops at this stage um we didn't want to wait for one month and you know how we have hired many people and they don't have a laptop it's ridiculous um and then we hired you know people in in the uk and there is brexit and we want to send them some stuff but now you have to go through customs you lose <laughs> you lose an, another week uh, because of that you know very small logistical stuff will make your life miserable and will just go from uh, a hundred percent growth rate to eighty percent growth rate um so it's very hard to maintain this this type of growth rate like a hundred plus because every single problem has to be fixed very quickly that's incredible so then imagine pierre that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of open classrooms is fully realized what does that world look like we have set this this ambition uh, obviously first it's the mission is to make education accessible which is kind of a never-ending uh, goal right but we have defined a more quantified ambition which is to place one million students a year in the workforce so we wanna uh, we wanna reach about um which basically you have a college open classrooms that involves one million students a year. They all graduate and they all find a job every year. Uh, so that that's kind of the ambition that we have, which is connected, as you understood, to uh, jobs and skills and and employability and employers. That's amazing. So so where do you think the the edtech world and and more than that, I mean education you know, is going as a whole, because obviously the way that, that universities operate and, and the world that the past, you know, that we're coming from, I mean, the future is going to be completely different. I think that in 15 or 20 years, it's going to be completely unrecognizable the way that, you know, people are getting educated. So 
Where do you think the whole education you know, space is, is going as a whole? Yeah, I, I mean, it changed so much already in, in, since COVID. That, that's a huge leap from where we were and we probably gained at least five years of digital transformation of the sector, you know. So first, obviously, there is this huge acceleration um, forcing education and, and training and learning to go from in-person to online. Um, thanks to COVID, to be honest. And um, so it was really a chronic uh, leap. And then we're still moving up the ladder. Then the second impact is um, the acceleration of the transformation of businesses. And that impact, that impacted skills and jobs. So because obviously retail, for example, is more online because of COVID than, than ever before less in-person retail mean more e-commerce. More e-commerce means the jobs are totally different. It's less shops, more logistical centers and, and fulfillment centers. It's more uh, digital jobs than anything. And it's a lot of customer service, etc. So jobs and skills are impacted even more dramatically. So you need more upscaling, you need more reskilling. Right now, there's a huge talent shortage on many different roles in many different markets. Um, so that means there is a huge need for corporate learning, corporate training, apprenticeship, reskilling, upskilling. So you have a combination of more education online and just more education needed. Uh, so the market is growing like crazy. And at the same time, uh, traditional incumbents are actually struggling uh, if they were not fit. Uh, to go online, I mean, it's a nightmare, you know, and students are just tired of being on, you know, um, in, in lectures online on Zoom um, for hours and hours. I mean, it's not, this is not online education, right? Um, so um, there's a shift that is happening very quickly from also more traditional pedagogies to, you know, more modern, fully online. I'd say digital-ready products. So all, all of that accelerated the market. Uh, so I, I would say uh, that the largest opportunity is actually in the vocational training. So it's working adults and job seekers uh, willing to switch careers, to upskill, to you know gain a few competencies, to get promoted, to have a mobility. Rather than what we... When we think of education, we, we always picture a college, a school, a university. But that, that's only a fraction of the learning journey of a given person. It's only from 18 to 24 or so. You know? yeah. um, what about from 20-ish to 60 plus? Uh, that's a huge portion of your life that is not very well addressed. And actually, the market is growing really quickly on that segment. Uh, so I, I, I'd say uh, new players like us uh, are making uh, a, a ton of progress on this segment and a bit on higher education. Um, but, uh, but I don't think we compete a lot against uh, traditional colleges. I, I don't think we, we do at all, to be honest. It's more the lifelong learner type that is. Got it. Got it. Uh, at stake here. So imagine, Pierre, I put you into a time machine, 
And I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment where you were thinking about it, you know, with your co-founder at really, you know, making this go from a personal project to a, a actual company. And you had a chance, you know, to go back in time with all the knowledge, the successes, the failures, the learnings that you've been able to get, you know, all the way, you know, in this, in this almost a decade, you know, of operating this company. And you're able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would say it's, it's hard to, with one piece of advice, to change, like, everything, you know. But um, it, it's more like be ambitious and, and trust your God. Be more ambitious. I, I think it took us a while until we really acknowledge uh, the size of the opportunity, the size of the ambition, and we started talking about it uh, openly. I think Matthew and I were a bit shy, and we we're like, "Oh yeah, maybe it can be big," but we we thought it was it was too much. Um, but I I think um, it could have accelerated a few things if we thought this way all the time, and that's kind of a also a, a problem of you know the risk adverse slash European culture to be honest. Yeah. On on trusting your gut is really like I think most of the time we we kind of knew what we had to do, uh which decision to take or and sometimes we're just too lazy, not brave enough, or too slow, or you know, we're nodding everything and and I, I would i would just say you know in most cases i think we were right but it, it took us a while to get to the conclusion and uh yeah maybe we we should have just have more self-confidence and, and just take the decision even if it doesn't please everybody and and, and move forward and and sometimes be wrong but that's fine to be wrong i love it I love it. So, Pierre, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, they can send me an email at pierre at openclassrooms.com. Amazing. Well, Pierre, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. It was so nice to talk to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.